Well, imagine yourself a fly on the wall in Langham House in the year 1205. Can you picture yourself a fly on the wall? I know. Mike Voigt's can, man. We have some historians here. <laughs> if you were a fly on the wall in 1205 in Langham House, you look down in the study and you've seen Stephen Langdon. And he was doing something, and you may never realize he did it, but he's profoundly affected your life. Because Stephen Langdon is the one who did, did, worked out the division so that every chapter in the Bible that you have today was done by Stephen Langdon, God bless him, in the year 1205. Now, that should be, first of all, we praise God for Stephen Langdon for doing it. We can quickly find a way around the scriptures. The verses didn't come until the 16th century, but 13th century, we at least had chapters. But uh, they are not part of the inspired word of God. Isaiah did not give us his text in chapters. And at times, I have screamed about the, the scripture divisions, uh, chapter divisions, and I was really helped by this by our beloved professor, Joe Donjel, whose wife we just, of course, prayed for. When Joe Donjel, this came up, he was actually discussing this case, why was Ephesians 5, why they put the 5 there? When uh, he said to me with some kindness, he said, but you know, you know how Dr. John's so kind, he says, you've got to give the man a lot of credit. He said, I kind of view it like baseball. If you bat over 300, you're really doing great. And so it gives you a lot more grace for the seven strikeouts. <laughs> so this morning, with the greatest respect for Stephen Langdon, one of the great churchmen in the history of the church, by the way, very much involved with the Magna Carta and so many other things he was involved in, but when it comes to Isaiah 52, 53, he really struck out. <laughs> because we are today looking at the fourth servant song of Isaiah, and it clearly starts in the last three verses of chapter 52. So when you read through to 53, you kind of just, just like it was read today, just keep reading through. No little 53 bump, because you need to read this as a whole. Now this servant song, we've looked at, early in the year, we looked at the other servant songs. This is the fourth one in this series on servanthood. And it begins with this wonderful, uh, behold, this is this interjection. It's the word henna. It it's a standalone word meaning see or look, take notice, behold. This is the behold word you see, a low word you see all through Scripture. Notice this. And it's this suffering servant we're met who has this amazing exaltation, this threefold exaltation. He'll be high and lifted up and exalted. By the way, the, the, the church fathers, because it's in the presence of God, the church fathers went wild on this. Oh, this is about, this is pointing to Christ who was, you know, resurrected. He was ascended. He was placed right hand of the Father. Very early on, the church took notice of this particular passage. But re really captured the church was not so much the idea of a coronation of a king being exalted into the very presence of God, which you have other examples in Scripture, particularly the Psalms, the Coronation Psalms. But by this exalted figure encountering so much suffering. This is uh, why it's called one of the suffering servant songs of Isaiah. Because here is the servant of God who experiences all of this suffering, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, 
And one for whom men hide their faces despised, we esteemed him not. But then it goes the next step. And seven times in this, the, this servant, this song, it actually introduces the most remarkable theme, which really captured the attention of the earliest Christians in the New Testament and all the way through to us today at any Lenten you know, service, even this week, today. He has seven times he talks about how this suffering is vicarious. This is what we would call in theology substitutionary atonement, right? God having a servant who suffers on behalf of others. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. This is four and five. Uh, the chastisement that was upon him brought us peace. With his stripes, we are healed. These are all substitutionary atonement language. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then down in verse 11 and 12, it fades into 12. They also messed up the verses. Uh, Many to be accounted were righteous shall be bare their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with many. He shall divide the spoil of the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And the whole thing ends, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, this is a little bit like, uh, of course, the Philippians hymn, right? The Philippians hymn mirrors this, where the one who is exalted goes down, down, down. He He became the form of a man. He became a servant all the way to death on the cross, and God highly exalted him. This is, this is very much inspirational for the New Testament. Now I want to ask the question, how is this possible? How does the early church take a passage of Scripture from the, you know, this is written 800 years before the time of Christ. How would someone take that and read into that text all of these images, think about all of the things we use this for our, you know, for Handel's Messiah, for all of the Christmas texts and preaching. How does this happen? Because I think the typical kind of default idea in the church, at least, is that we decide, because we see these connections, to read Christ back into these texts. That's kind of how I think it's generally understood in the church, that we, we realize this was written 800 years before, but we read Christ back into the text. I want, I want to challenge that, but I want to do that by asking the question of how we understand history, how, well, how I say the culture does, how Jews understood history, and how Christians view history. Now, if you want to think about our, I say our, the culture's view of history in the Western world, it's a little like these chairs lined up here on the, on the stage, or I shouldn't say stage, right? It's, it's the... Um, Platform, yeah. Platform. The platform. The sacred platform. See how we're affected by the culture? I call this a stage. What, what is this thing I hear? Okay. Pulpit. All right. We view history like chairs lined on the platform here. And so every person occupies a chair in a, in a kind of an endless succession of kind of successive of chronological events, right? And these chairs can't be mis- mixed up at all. That's how we view that. Now, it's because of that view of history, I want to show a, a little clip, because I'm a baseball fan at heart, you know. I'm a somebody president, second. Baseball fan first, just kidding. 
Uh, I'll show you a little clip from a very, very uh, pedantic scene. Uh, it's a by guy who hits a ball very weakly. It kind of dribbles to first base. And you, the guy who takes it, this is a part of the history, actually, he's so scared to throw it to first base and miss. He, he kind of runs and eventually just tosses it to first base. Now, why was this event a defining event in how Americans understand history? Watch this clip. No stolen base. Okay, that took place on October 27th, 2004, and the Red Sox won the World Series, and they broke the 87-year curse of Bambino, and it was a big moment. Yes, I watched it. I was there. Um, now, what's, what you may not know, maybe you do know because it was in the news a lot, but was that when this as this inning approach got to this point, people, because this, by the way, this is around midnight, 12.30, this happened, okay? There are a lot of babies uh, sleeping cribs. And so suddenly, upon paying parents all over New England rushed to their children's rooms, took these babies out of the cribs, and brought them into the living rooms. Now, I want to tell you, if you take a child that's been put down lovingly at 8.30 and you go in there and you pick them up, pluck them up at 12 o'clock midnight, there's generally babies fall into two categories. There's the one category, which for Joey and I is purely theoretical because we never had this child, but there are some children who just will not wake up. And they're, they're being carried in, limply, like limply, and you're, you're holding the child before the television set, and because the child still has their eyes closed, the mother came across the head, there's pictures of this, this is not a joke, and lift the eyelids of the baby up to watch what you just saw. And then the other category of children, which we know very well, is if you disturb them at any point, they scream, just burst down and screaming, I mean, bloody screaming with the gun and the veins sticking out. They come out, and even though they're screaming, you have them watch that scene. And you say something to them like, someday you'll thank me. <laughs> now, the reason for that is because of our view of history. People wanted to tell their children, with your eyes, you saw the curse and being no broken. You saw the Red Sox victory. You were there. I, I, I brought you, you saw it. In that way, this child, believing, knew, will someday say, I saw it. I was there that night. <laughs> Don't mention they were like, you know, two months old in the crib. I saw it with my eyes. Now, I want to tell all the fans that did that, and by the way, if I'd had a child, I would have done it too at that time. Our kids were alive and well watching it with us. But if, if you were a Jewish parent, you could have let your children sleep. And they still would have been watching it. And the reason is because of the Jewish view of history. Because rather than it being like chairs lined up on the, on the platform like this, it, it's more like viewing chairs stacked up. Everybody is in everybody else's chair. 
This is, what, this is why the, the Hebrew talks about being in the loins of, you know, you're, all your ancestors are inside your loins. It's a scary thought, isn't it? You, you're, you're you, and there's everybody that comes from you, and you're inside everybody that's coming before you. Everybody is inside everybody else. It's a, it's a view of history that views things much more connectedly. And so, therefore, if you have children and you watch the World Series, your children are watching it too. Now, that is a view of history which might say, you were their view of history. Now, what's so good about that is Moses is talking to the people of Israel, and they're on the, they're, he's given his final sermons. On, and even in, in latest Deuteronomy 29, he says to the children of Israel, your eyes, yes, your eyes saw this deliverance of Egypt. No, they, they didn't. Well, Joshua and Caleb, other than that, there were no eyes that seen. They were born in the wilderness. Why does Moses say, your very eyes saw this deliverance from Egypt? You know why? Because their eyes, from their point of view, their eyes did. Because they were inside their parents. They were, the stairs were stacked. The chairs were stacked. Now, the Christian view of history is even not, not even that. So you have the culture view of history, which is every event is a successive event that goes on forever and no chairs can be moved around. You've got the Jewish view of history. The chairs are all stacked, so we're all connected to holistically together. But the Jewish, the Christian view of history is not so much you were there as he is here. Jesus is the Lord of all time. He occupies all history. He is here. That's why Jessica can say, hold up the, the, the Eucharist and say, this is my body broken for you. Christ is here at the table. That's what Bob preached on last week, Bob, Bob uh, Stamps. The whole point is that he is here. Christ moves forward. You come to the table, for example, you take the Eucharist. You are, in the past, you're remembering your, from us, uh, back in time, remembering your own salvation or even the first Passover for that matter. Christ is present for all of that. You're remembering your present taking the Eucharist and the present receiving forgiveness right in there. Christ is present for that. You're also preparing this, the hors d'oeuvres for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Christ is there too. So Christ actually is in, occupies the eternal now. He's present in all of history. So we don't have to be brought back into history. He brings history forward to us. And so for, for Christians what we call holiday, Christian holidays, or we call them holy days, are not just about remembering a sacred event, it's about encountering a holy God. It's not about remembering what happened in the past, it's the past being brought forward to us. That's a Christian view of history. So Christ presents himself to us, and he presents himself to the text of Isaiah and to the past, what we call the past of Israel's history, because he's present in all of that. So when Moses is on Mount Moriah, sacrificing, it's not just, it's not simply the fact that he is anticipating what would happen, which is our perspective on it. Christ is present in Mount Moriah. When Azariah, the high priest, stands before the the altar, and he goes into the Holy of Holies and he puts blood on the horns of the altar. It's not simply anticipating what Christ would do. It, it is that. It's also Christ by virtue of who he is in history. He's present at the altar when the blood is put on the horns of the altar. When Ezra is there in the reestablished 
altar in Nehemiah's time, and they had the great sacrifice there. Christ is present there with Ezra and Nehemiah. And so it is when we come to the table today. Christ is present. So when we have this encounter here, we have to recognize that, that in some ways the suffering servant comes to us in this text. And this is why in the passage of Scripture, and you go through the, the New Testament, Gospel of Matthew, for example, when Jesus comes and uh, heals people, uh, Matthew wants to explain how in the world Christ heals people. He says, well, because Isaiah said, he heals our infirmities. Isaiah 53, verse 4 is quoted in Matthew 8, 17. Uh, think about it. Philip comes uh, to the Ethiopian eunuch, right? He climbs up into the chariot and finds a chariot reading from the scroll. And where's he reading from? Where? Isaiah. He reads Isaiah 53, but the 53 wasn't there yet because Stephen Langdon hadn't done it. <laughs> but he was reading what we today call Isaiah 53. Can you believe? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And so he comes in the chariot and he sees him reading this passage. He says, like a lamb, sheep led to the slaughter, like a lamb of some for his sherry, so he'd open his mouth. Who's he talking about? And it says, from that point on, Philip started with that scripture, proclaimed him the good news about Jesus Christ. All through scripture we find this. This is the amazing fact uh, in Peter. Peter talks about how Jesus, he, in his letter, 2 Peter, 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, no deceit found in his mouth. Talking about Jesus quoting Isaiah. He's not reading Jesus back into Isaiah. Jesus is bringing Isaiah up to him. Jesus is presenting Isaiah to him. Because Jesus has, he occupies all of history. Now we talk a lot about in uh, church history, and I, I'm glad that Dr. O'Malley is here because he's a walking historian, literally. Uh, you know how you can play these uh, games like, uh, you know, these uh, trivia games? I want you to just sometime walk out of Tromali and just throw out a date, any date, any date. <laughs> what happened on that date? And he'll tell you what happened. I, 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 was, I, I had, we have two children. I mean, our children are born, and Julie's born on these amazing Christian days. Our, our daughter, our son was banged, give you one example, on May 24th. Can you believe it? That's the day that John Wesley had his heartwarming experience. So our kids have all of these amazing days, these great holy days, where their birthday aligns with the Christian year. My life, I got like nothing happened on September 24th. <laughs> nothing. So one day, I saw Dr. Malley in the hallway. Hey, Dr. Malley, just curious. Could you find out if anything Christian happened on September 24th and the whole history of the church? Without breaking his stride, he said, oh, that's when the, the swinging felters arrived in the new world. <laughs> Who would know? <laughs> so, my birthday is when the swinging felters came to the new world. Praise God. <laughs> so, he would also tell you that Martin Luther, the great reformer, talked about uh, what he called the two glories of the cross, Right? He talked about the, what he called the glory revelatus, where Christ comes to us as the resurrected one, the reigning one, the, the triumphant one. That's the glory we know about, talk about, celebrate, sing about. But he also talks about that other glorious, he called the absconditus, the, the, the hidden glory of God, 
where God reveals his glory through suffering. God's servant is presented to us in suffering. Now, what we, in this course, Wesley obviously celebrates this with his hymns. You know, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. If you're, if you're one of our people coming from outside, we can't have a service at Estes without quoting this hymn. Tis mercy all the immortal dies, who can explore his strange design. In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Tis mercy all, let earth adore, let angel minds inquire no more. Now what the angel minds are trying to fathom, this strange design, is this hidden glory. That God manifests his glory through suffering. Now, what we don't often make the connection is that when Christ comes to us, when we become Christians and we become in Christ, that's only possible because Christian view of history. We don't just remember the cross. The cross is presented to us. It becomes, we are, we are brought into union with Christ. 74 times in the New Testament, we are called as those in Christ. 72 from the Apostle Paul, two from Peter. But we ourselves experience these two glories, don't we? We have the glory of being risen with Christ. We have the glory of sharing, being as, as, uh, as Ephesians says, we're seated with him in heavenly realms. This is like glorious stuff that we, we get to be a part of because we are now in Christ. We're part of this new history because now wherever Christ is, we can be there too. We're, so we're in the heavenly realms apparently, worshiping God right there in heaven even though we're here. We're, we're with Christ in his victory. We, we died with him. We raised with him. All these things happen. We're ascended with him. We, we're now part of this whole amazing history. But it also means that we share in his sufferings. Now, the thing about the, the prophets, it's interesting. If you were to talk, go out to the church and ask 15 Christians, hey, what comes to your mind when you think about vicarious suffering, vicarious atonement in the Old Testament? What, what, what does that mean to you? And if you got any answer at all, you would get something like, well, that's the sacrificial system. Sheep and lambs and, and uh, bulls and goats being sacrificed, that's what it is. But, and that is true. But it's also the whole ministry of the prophet was also that. Dr. Oswald's here. I've got a great Isaiah scholar as well as a person who understands prophets. But he'll tell you as well, the prophets bear in their bodies their message. Now think about the things that prophets are told to do. Isaiah's told, I just think, put yourself in the shoes. Okay, God's going to tell you to do what he told prophets to do. Okay, you ready for this? Those of you who are coming here for intensives might want to think twice. You want to really go through with this? As seminary stuff, okay, you get out of seminary, you graduate, and the Lord, okay, I want you to go in your church, preach the gospel, I want you to do it naked. What? Isaiah was told, go, go around naked. Uh, Jeremiah, I want you to walk around town with a yoke over your neck and uh, preach the gospel. Like, I don't know, it's really weird. Ezekiel, uh, I want you to get up front, read the spot, read the scripture, and then I want you to eat it and swallow it. How would that go over Sunday night service? <laughs> Take, eat the Bible, swallow it. Chapters and verses. Hosea, go, mar go marry a prostitute. Go down. Don't just go help the prostitutes, go marry one. Because that's the only way they'll understand my amazing love for, the, for those who are lost. Go marry the prostitute. Wow. Okay, what is all that about? And there's so many other examples of this. 
that is all about the prophet bearing in his, her body the sufferings of Christ, the manifestations of Christ in the world, and does this, of course, in their own time frame. In the same way, when the disciples are, uh, had their first encounter with, with being beaten, they left the presence of the Sanhedrin concerning worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. When Saul of Tarsus gets converted on the road to, uh, road to, to Damascus, <coughs> we always quote part of it, what the Lord says to him. We never quote the whole part of it when finally he finally tells this whole story with Ananias where he says to him, I will show him, this is the Apostle Paul, how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Like that, if that's the calling, like, whoa, wait a minute. I thought he said, I'm going to give you a really big church and everybody's going to love you. Philippians 1.29, For it's granted for you, for the sake of Christ, only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. And of course, Ephesians 3, uh, uh, and Philippians, where Paul says in, that we're not only to be called into the power of his resurrection, which we love that, but also the fellowship of his sufferings. Right? So being in Christ and calls to all the things that Christ represents to the world. That's the challenge and the glory of it. Colossians 1, 24 says something that if it wasn't the Bible, we would say it was a heresy, so scandalizing, where he says, we fill up in our own bodies what is lacking in Christ's affliction. How about that for a verse you don't think, verses you never hear preached about? And Paul tells the church of Thessalonica, this is, I keep telling you beforehand that we were to suffer afflictions. He tells Timothy in his closing correspondence to him, 2 Timothy 2, 3, be it share and suffer as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. This is the real challenge because when it says in the scriptures, Christ in you, the hope of glory, we, we don't realize what that it means all of God's glory, both the manifested and the hidden, the revelatus, the abconditus. It, it means all of that. Now, I wanted to say on behalf of uh, the prayer today and the people of Ukraine, I, I, like you, I've seen so many pictures. One of the most amazing pictures came again from the Evangelical uh, Seminary of Ukraine who addressed us through Zoom a few weeks ago. And they were giving Eucharist to all these soldiers and it was very powerful because they recognize that they are bearing in their bodies essentially a substitutionary, though I know it's now afflicted the whole of the country and ever civilians and children and all the rest. But if you're a soldier, you are in some ways bearing this responsibility to bear this suffering out on behalf of your people. And they really, I mean, and some of them are taking Eucharist like they've never taken it before because they're taking into their bodies the very suffering of Christ that they bear out into the world. And so in some ways, that's what we all do as Christians, don't we? I want to show you in closing a, uh, a picture of a, of a cross, a famous cross. It's one that's not as familiar to our uh, tradition because this is the Celtic cross and it's come mostly into the Presbyterian world. But it's a very, very important cross in the history of the church. I'll tell you why. This cross, of course, comes from uh, the, the gospel's triumph over uh, the, the paganism in Ireland. And so in those days, it was, it was common, actually, in various terms, to when you had a, a, a country that had been under the, you know, the crush of paganism to actually be profoundly Christianized, to design a cross that would in some way tell the story of what happened there. 
And they did something in, among the Celtic Christians that, to my knowledge, has never been done before or since in terms of how you think about the cross. We've seen crosses like the Roman cross we often see, or, the, or actually the Greek cross, the Roman crosses, different kinds of crosses are out there. But this one here has this unusual circle that's, uh, where the cross is embedded over the circle. It's, it's meant to be the cross on top of the circle. The circle was the, and is, I guess, is a symbol of the Druid symbol of paganism. So from their point of view, this circle represented the religion that they had known before the gospel came. And through much suffering and much difficulty, the gospel triumphed, and Christ walked in the land of the Irish. And this cross shows the cross superimposed over the circle of paganism. In some ways, I think that's your calling today. Because we live in a culture that's re-emerging into paganism. So many lost Christian practices, so much lost Christian memory. It's almost like we're going into a, a, a emerging mission field, many of you, all, all of you in some way or another. In some ways, we have to, the gospel has to once again be contextualized in the sense of, has to present itself into the context of where we are and to show the power of the gospel over this world, over this struggle. And the great thing about it is that we go out as those in Christ. We bear his suffering into this world. We bear also his triumph into the world. And this cross always reminds me that there's no power so great, no evil so deep, no wickedness so distasteful, so shocking, that the love of Christ is not greater still. The power of the gospel and the love of Christ, which reaches to the depths of humanity and drags it up and joins it to become part of this amazing procession of Christ where we follow him as those ourselves captive to this great victory of the gospel. Thanks be to God. Amen.